Hello everyone, I am Giulio Prisco and this is the first Turing Church podcast episode of 2024. Happy New Year! 2024 promises to be a great year for spaceflight. In 2024, we could make important advances toward the, the cosmist dream of space expansion. This podcast episode was first published in 2019. It was the pilot and, alas, the last episode of a media project called Maximum Jailbreak. I started the project with my friends Stellar Magnet, Patrick Donovan and others. Maximum Jailbreak. We want to break free of Earth's gravity and go out there among the stars. We want to start now. We want to go back to the Moon to stay, then to Mars and other planets and moons in the solar system, and then to the stars. We want, we can, and we must. First, we looked for a a catchy, inspiring and unique name for our project. It was Stellar Magnet who thought of Maximum Jailbreak, the title of a perceptive 2013 essay by Benedict Singleton. I loved the name at first sight and wrote a review of Singleton's essay. Singleton elaborates on the ideas of Nikolai Fyodorov and other Russian cosmists like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, noting that cosmism's foundational gesture was to conceive of the Earth as a trap. Its duty was, therefore, to understand the duty of philosophy, economics and design to be the creation of means to escape it. This could be regarded as a jailbreak at the maximum possible scale, a hist in which the human species could steal itself from the vault of the earth. We contacted Singleton, who graciously gave his blessing to the project and agreed to participate as a guest in this episode. Our old Maximum Jailbreak website has disappeared. This episode is still online on SoundCloud, but I thought to republish it here in case it disappears. The original description of the episode is In this pilot episode, our hosts, Patrick Donovan and Giulio Prisco, uh, talk with Dr. Benedict Singledon about breaking free of Earth's gravity to go out there among the stars. In a philosophical journey through design, history, space history and more. Hello, fellow prisoners of gravity. My name is Patrick Donovan, and welcome to Maximum Jailbreak. Listen in as my co-conspirator, Julio Prisco, and I plot our escape from Earth. Hello, this is Julio. I am a former scientist and manager in the public space sector and a futurist who wants to go to the stars. And I'm Patrick, a licensed civil engineer in California, and hopefully one day on Mars. In this podcast series, 
experts in fields ranging from philosophy to engineering will join us in carving a path to the stars. So, are you in? Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode of Maximum Jailbreak. Maximum Jailbreak is a space media project with a special focus on open cities and space programs. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Benedict Singleton, the man who coined the name of this podcast, about the rapidly changing nature of humanity's relationship with space and what to do about it, both at the societal level and the individual level. But first, what do we mean by Maximum Jailbreak? To quote Dr. Singleton's essay, we consider the Earth a trap, and to understand the common project of philosophy, economics, and design as being the formulation of means to escape from it. In that sense, becoming a multiplanetary species is the ultimate jailbreak. For Julio and I, this common project really speaks to the fundamental reasons why we co-founded Space Cooperative along with a team of other people with expertise ranging from coding to mechanical engineering, and the reasons why we are working on Space Decentral. Giving everyone the tools to shape space exploration is an essential part of our future, and Space Decentral will be an essential part of creating and sharing those tools with everyone else. Dr. Benedict Singleton is a partner and director of design at Rival Strategy, co-founded in 2016 with Marta Ferreira de Sa, and serves on the faculty of the New Normal Program at the Strelka Institute for Media, Architecture, and Design, a nonprofit international education project. He previously worked as an independent strategy consultant, was co-director of a graduate architecture studio at the Royal College of Art, and worked on numerous self-directed creative projects including pieces commissioned by Tate Britain, one of the largest art museums in the UK, and the Guggenheim in New York City. Dr. Singleton also earned his PhD in philosophy from North Umbria University in 2014. Themes from his doctoral thesis, quote, on craft and being crafty, human behavior as an object of design, resurfaced throughout his writing and work. He's also writing The Long Con, a book about an alternative history of design, and regularly writes on the politics and philosophy of technology for publications including Architectural Design and eFlux. He's also lectured at the Architectural Association, the Royal College of Art, the Bartlett School of Architecture, and many more locations internationally. Today, you'll hear quite a bit about a few of his publications. Dr. Singleton, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for that, Patrick. And I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me to part of the program. I'm, I'm very flattered. So let's get started with uh, taking a closer look at your work, Dr. Singleton. Uh, notably, your 2013 essay for EFLUX on space travel is titled Maximum Jailbreak and is, in fact, the inspiration for the name of this very podcast. In your essay, you make the case that we should consider the Earth as a trap and further argue that the common project of philosophy, economics, and design 
should be the formulation of the means to escape from it. So I'd like to start a conversation around your essay and specifically with your frame of reference. So what sparked your interest in space travel generally and what spurred you to write this essay in particular? Yeah, Maximal Jailbreak was the title of an essay that I first published in 2013, as you say, and then it was, I guess, an attempt to bring together the thinking I've been doing around design and strategy for a number of years and apply it to something that I kind of cared deeply about, which was you know, projects of space travel and inhabitation. The latter was something that I was always interested in, I guess, but in, in a very sort of ambient way, like growing up in, in the 80s and 90s with like a lot of NASA imagery and, and that kind of thing. I guess I didn't really think about like engaging with it in, in a serious way until I kind of completed my PhD and was working as a designer in London. And a few things kind of came together, which made me think perhaps there's something sort of interesting to be explored here. My professional background, as it were, was, was as a designer. My academic background was much more in philosophy. And I'd been writing about a kind of alternative history of design, and then it, it sort of like intersected with space travel in a, in a really, uh, for me, unexpected way. To give you a little background, I guess, my, my PhD work came out of, I, I was really interested in things like new emerging fields of design, like especially in the, the 90s through the noughties, like service design and business design and people basically talking about design, you know, from the perspective of you know, graphic design, and product design and, and designing websites and so on. And taking those things into designing organizations. And I thought this was super interesting because it seemed like such an incompatible thing to be applying design to human behavior. So if we think about the initial uh, sort of impression you'd get if someone said like we're designing behavior, then it immediately sounds like extremely top down and aggressive and to treat a person as a thing or to objectify people is to dehumanize them, right? So I was kind of interested in like, well, how, how does design sort of negotiate this thing? Because most of design's history, people have talked about, you know, since the industrial revolution anyway, People, whenever they're talking about design and the theories that underlie it and so on, they're really talking about a person and an object um, and the person designing the object. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this situation where if you're talking about, say, service design. If a service is an act that's performed on someone else's behalf, the, the kind of minimum situation, as it were, is not a designer and an object. It, it's like a person and another person. So I was just interested in what design might have to say about this in like an objective way, not in a kind of like pro or, or contra way. Because I, I sort of reasoned that, you know, if lawyers and psychiatrists and political scientists and philosophers and so on had devoted like an enormous amount of time to creating very nuanced views of, of you know, like interpersonal um, interactions, then like perhaps design could offer something as well. You know, I, I didn't think that these are political questions and therefore should just be relegated to political decisions that design then comes along and tries to implement. I was just interested in whether there was something else that could be said. So what I found was that actually a lot of those arguments about designing behavior being seen as a super negative thing actually originated in the early years of the Industrial Revolution, pretty much 200 years ago, with the growth of the factory and people effectively being forced to kind of conduct themselves as though they were machines because they were tending big machines and they'd have to work at the rhythm and the pace and so on of the machines. And before that, there was quite a different view of design, um, both you know, kind of in Western Europe where the research started, but then also if you look at you know, Chinese philosophy or like anthropological um, 
writing on, on how design and craft is understood in, in traditional societies and so on, that there was this like different resonance of design where design was not right seen about like just taking some static thing and like applying the human imagination to it. It was instead a, um, seen as like this actually quite sort of deceptive and underhand um, and cunning maneuver, I guess cunning being the, the operative word, by which I mean that um, this was like a view of design that connects like in English as in many other languages, like connects terms that are used in like a technical sense, like um, craft um, or manipulation or fabrication with words like uh, crafty or for that matter, manipulation and fabrication seen as, as you know, manipulating people or fabricating something as in lying and so on. And so it turns out this is a whole sort of like alternate history of design where design was seen as this cunning and like inventive and ad hoc practice. And it was linked to, to certain kinds of behavior that we actually don't have a very good political vocabulary for. And I guess what was really compelling to me about that was, and quite unexpectedly, that meant that design was not something that people in a position of power do. It was it was almost always like a weapon of the week. Like designing was a thing that you did when, you know, you weren't able to control a situation directly. So it was much more associated with people trying to change their situation in otherwise incredibly difficult circumstances than it was anything to do with, with the kind of like later understanding of uh, a designing behavior as being like the top-down imposition of a plan. So that kind of like long-winded explanation um, <laughs> I ended up being really uh, sort of engaging with, with thinking about space travel. I mean, partly because, like I say, I had a kind of like long-standing and general interest in it. But then also because in um, space travel, really since its inception, it's like an actual practical program. It's like a thing that engineers are working on. And a lot of like long-standing political and philosophical questions about you know how societies work and how people are around each other and uh, what human beings need not just to survive but to flourish and so on they actually become technical problems themselves, right? If you're designing something yeah. off-world, you can't really take anything for granted at all. Um, and you know that's emerging as like a like a major narrative in, in engineering projects. I'm thinking of something like uh, Rachel Armstrong's uh, work at the moment on trying to design synthetic soils and things like that. It's like literally you don't have any ground, so you have to make some and think about how soil works. And that, with respect to you know the questions I was interested in, it seemed that the way that in popular culture, but the sort of images being produced of space travel were quite different to what I grew up with. And I think still like what most people would associate with space travel. You were having things like the Curiosity Rover, having this trending Twitter account. This is quite a long way away from like, you know, grainy TV footage of Neil Armstrong stepping off the lander onto the moon, right? It's a stranger kind of thing. Um, so... I mean, I guess it's a, where Maximum Jailbreak came from was, was trying to think of, like, so how is this stuff that I've been looking at about different understandings of um, design that have existed? Um, like, how might that apply in this, this kind of new situation if some of the old narratives about space travel are, are, are beginning to, to fragment and don't really make so much sense compared to things that we're actually literally seeing, you know, on our screens? That was a, a brilliant traverse through the past couple hundred years of um, <laughs> history and also a very nice plug for people who haven't read your, your PhD thesis in full. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't advise it. <laughs> but um, 
I do. I wish we were in the same room so you could see me nodding as you were speaking about all these different things. And, and I do want to highlight a, an interesting contrast that maybe you deliberately put into what you just said, maybe not. At first, you, you mentioned that space travel and space exploration was a, an ambient part of your life, of, of your environment growing up in the 80s and 90s. But then the imagery, the graphics, which in many ways were deliberately crafted or designed by these space agencies, there's definitely an overt effort to engage young people with this, this imagery and encourage participation in uh, the scientific fields, the, the graphic fields, the, these big dreaming efforts. So I think it's interesting that there's this, this kind of fractal propagation of planning. And in this case, it's some design from a space agency ended up treating you, uh, for better or worse, as, as you noted, with this idea of people as the object you design. You were the object of that design. And considering your writing, I would say that in some regards, it worked. They, they sparked your interest <laughs> and elevated space travel from an ambient part of your life into something that you're directly engaging with now. Yeah, sure. That's a good observation. Space travel at that point in the 60s was very photogenic. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it was a charismatic thing. You know, the earth is a blue dot and the American flag on the moon and all these things, which very much sort of imprinted themselves on popular consciousness. Although it's difficult to ascertain, I guess, what general views of those kinds of initiatives were. Um, and I say that because I remember seeing actually, I think it might have been from the Smithsonian, uh, some documentation produced about the history of the American public's engagement in space travel, like how many people were pro space travel over time. And there was a big spike you know, kind of 68, 69, but actually it was pretty low, like the rest of the time. So despite the fact that, you know, all this kind of imagery was in the popular consciousness and became this really standard thing in blockbuster movies and so on, it's curious to see that it didn't actually really translate in, into people necessarily getting behind the space program, which I suspect the, um, the two space shuttle disasters had a lot to do with the public cooling of the temperament in, in that regard. But yeah, for sure, there was definitely, for me, this kind of sense that space travel is really interesting, but actually all of a sudden it was beginning to look strangely different while also strangely the same with the advent of you know private space companies and, and things like that. It was sort of like a reanimation of some of those ideas and grand images, like I mean, SpaceX's vertical takeoff and landing rocket, for instance. I remember yeah. people clustered around computer screens just sort of staring at it because it just didn't look like a thing that could actually happen, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great point that these glamorous images from the 60s are kind of changing the way that they present themselves in all these more subtle ways. I think you put it better than I can right now. So to quote your essay a bit, tying into that historical paradigm shift you just mentioned, uh, you said that the motivations for the space missions these days are things we didn't hear in the last century. You, you highlighted profit, science, entertainment, national pride, and, and collective defense. And it's an open question whether we can conceive of some genuinely new ideas about how all this space exploration might transpire differently now from the 20th century. And then later in your essay, you go on to visit the works of Nikolai Fedorov. But mm -hmm. uh, first, and briefly, let's dive into your take on these contrasts that you started uh, discussing between this 20th century space activity and, and what you're seeing now. What do you see as some important paradigms that describe human spaceflight as it was at different times. 
Sure. I mean, I think to clarify a little, you know, when, when talking about those different advanced motivations, I guess those kinds of things had, had been spoken about for a long time, like in the American Space Program, and they're now being kind of treated differently in a way. When you have like private companies have been involved in astronautics for a long time, but like all of a sudden you have, you know, something like SpaceX or, or planetary resources actually having kind of like a media presence of their own and like talking about the profitability of asteroid mining and, and things like that in a way that was perhaps not so present in kind of a previous paradigm. I'm no kind of expert on the history of space travel in, in like a deep sense. But it seems to me that there, there were at least a series of quite obvious phases you can draw. And the first one being from the 1880s, at least, you get extraordinary work like Nikolai Fedorov's, for example, which is very peculiar indeed. But this is someone trying to come up with like a rationalized program for um, getting the majority of the human species living off world. Uh, and this was being written in the 1880s, so like 20 years before fixed-wing flight was demonstrated. Uh, and it was already <laughs> yeah. kind of like, right, so we're going to start needing to build cities on nearby planets, some things like that. But not seen as a science fictional thing, actually seen as like programmatic. And then you get sort of a lot of the engineering advances in the, the early part of the 20th century, where you have, for instance, Fedorov's mentee, uh, Tsiolkovsky, designing multi-stage booster rockets and, and things like that. But this is still like a fairly niche interest, let's say, as far as I know. And then you have this huge flourishing like when achievements start being made. And that's in the context of the, the Cold War. And you begin the generation of these images that we were talking about um, beforehand. All of a sudden, you have this kind of competitive paradigm moves in. It's no longer hypothetical. It's like what well, human species is actually now in theory, capable of doing these things. And there's a huge competition about like taking a series of further steps, you know, so there's Sputnik, and then you have a dog in space, and then you have a person in space. And then, you know, you, the race is on to get to the moon and, and so on. So it's always framed as being like universal accomplishments, you know, um, a giant leap for mankind and, and so on, but a competition over which techno-economic uh, system can like produce those effects first. And then after the 1980s, it seems that it's not like this stuff goes away completely, but it just, it becomes a bit more, it's more abstract paradigm of space travel. We're talking about science in space and the ISS and also things that people just do not associate with space travel at all, like the GPS network on most of our mobile phones. Like if you listen to this in, in the West, you know, this is it's like a huge space initiative but like people don't even associate it anymore it's it's like way too abstracted for people to think you know when they're checking google maps it's kind of like oh there's a network of satellites functioning according to specific protocols that have been put in place according to a particular grid and and so on and then yeah now it uh, things have seemed to be changing up with, with like a much more kind of forceful and consistent series of achievements which are still a bit more abstract than something like let's try and get a person to the moon but they're sort of like multiplying them and have become much more um, present in the popular imaginary. So you have SpaceX and you have asteroid mining and things like that. But you have, you know, the Japanese Space Agency uh, just reporting uh, water on an asteroid um, that they've managed to put a lander on and things like that. It's, you know, it, it's like it's becoming much more um, visible again. Yeah, it is definitely. And um, it, it kind of harkens back to your, your thesis work about different concepts and definitions of planning. Um, sometimes it's really overt and in your face, like um, with the Apollo program mm. or with um, these really photogenic uh, landings of SpaceX boosters. 
And, and other times it's more subtle and, and abstract in the background with science being a goal or international peace. It's definitely a, a different narrative, different face that the space industry is presenting to the, the public writ large. I'm curious, what, what do you think of this new shift towards space as not the realm of just grand national efforts, but for now more and more with private efforts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex because it's not like you didn't have, you know, big defense contractors involved in, in NASA programs and, and, and so on before. But there's definitely at least on the surface level, there's, there's like a big diversification. I mean, even if, if you're just talking about, you know, kind of like nationally committed efforts, there are like substantial achievements coming, you know, not just from the States and Russia, but also China and also Japan and also India and, and so on and so forth. So there's kind of like a generalization of different actors, even at that level, before you start throwing in, um, you know, private companies in, in different configurations and, and so on. So it's kind of a complicated situation. And I think one of the things I was trying to wrestle with when putting together the, the sort of maximum jailbreak project was the fact that you have this sort of like redefinition of all these, these different characteristics. I mean, look at the early sort of press with planetary resources and deep space industries and so on. Uh, and things like, I don't even know that like the Asterank system, you know, estimates of the mineral value of like bodies potentially capturable around um, Earth orbit. And, and like, it's astonishing. It's just people like putting dollar figures on the things, things like, oh, this is a trillion dollar asteroid. The thing is, if you brought a trillion dollar asteroid into Earth orbit and started mining it, it, it would bankrupt all mining industry on Earth. Yeah, so we're sort of in this situation where I think one of the things that spurred me to, to at least entertain the possibility of like, could there be uh, new kinds of, you know, popular narrative around these things? Not so much, you know, it's not about a rebrand, but more about like new understandings of what was happening, being spurred by these sort of extraordinary circumstances where space travel in the sense of, you know, the, the trillion dollar asteroid capture kind of thing. It's like this is an event so momentous that it would actually like derail, you know, systems that we're, that we're familiar with, economic systems. Like you'd be in an immediate sort of post-scarcity situation where, with respect to like certain metals on that asteroid, where there would just be so much of them. And obviously there are issues of, you know, political control over that and, and so on. But it felt to me it was necessary to take an attempt to look beyond the initial or stated objectives to try and think of like, actually, how do we, we see past some of these things? Yeah. Um, I got to say, I'm glad that you, you, you brought up the, the human impact, the, the earth side impact, if you will, of such a, a grandiose shift in the way that we, we operate as an industry in these, how this trillion dollar figure would really affect the rest of the world. And uh, I want to resurrect an analogy that you brought up earlier in our, our talk today about how the Industrial Revolution and viewing objects as the, the object of design parallels looking at people as the object of design and the risk of dehumanizing people, uh, depending on the rhetoric of the situation, when looking at these kind of societal shifts as a designer with the intent of changing society, whether it's mostly economically like planetary resources or possibly socially like Asgardia. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I bring up this uh, industrial revolution narrative is, well, at least for my education and my upbringing being in the U.S., 
we look at a lot of the Industrial Revolution through the lens of the jungle and the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, where people are just kind of put by the wayside in the name of economic progress. And similarly, the, the, the factories have the same approach to outmoded technology. So again, it's this blurring of lines between people and objects. You also noted how both with potential shifts to the space paradigm with asteroid mining and also with the real world shifts in, in space activity, there, along with technology getting left behind, we also have ideas and people getting left behind. And as we move forward into the rest of the century, what, what role do you see these older ideas, technologies, and the people who lived and worked within them, what role do you see them playing as we move forward? Oof, that's yeah, quite a large-scale, you know, kind of planetary political question, right? I mean, I, I guess from my perspective, with a lot of these things that we're talking about, these sort of momentous shifts, there's going to be a continual tension over control, basically, of, you know, available resources and, and this sort of thing. And I think that's where it's necessary to rethink some of the deeply embedded metaphors that, that are underlying some of our thinking about this. I mean, it, when we talk about space travel in general, and this has kind of like become a fixture of language, there's a lot of imperial and naval metaphors, right? So like we talk about a spaceship or a spacecraft, and we talk about, for instance, settlements and colonies and things like that. And, you know, that's kind of like explicitly imperial ambitions. And it's the sort of thing where I hope to see these things undone by kind of new treatments. So I'm reminded of when I was teaching at the Royal College of Art, uh, we had a, a really talented student in our graduate studio called Tanya Eskander, who did a really nice project when she was looking at uh, Mars settlements. Um, but from the lens of architects and urbanists rather than a, a vehicle designer. Because she was looking through everything and saying, well, this is all you know, basically being done by like vehicle designers and the habitats that they're talking about and so on are basically just spaceships on the ground. And so she, she did this project which had the wonderful name of City for Six where she tried to like engineer a layout that was basically like a city and that was treated in like an urban way. It's like people actually have to live here and they have to have kind of interactions which in the long term cannot be super tightly programmed and and kind of mission critical they need to be looser than that and you know new thinking needs to be brought into that um aspiration in terms of the general effort as we might call it i, I think a more direct answer to your question and one of the things that really enthuses me about projects like Space Decentral is the attempt to maximize the accessibility to different people around the world of being like an active part of these programs, which is just like a very forceful step away from a highly constrained and like top-down managed and controlled understanding of how these programs should be affected, right? And that I can only see as being a, an incredibly positive move, no matter how the many different ways that you could argue about this politically, it seems to me like the general gradient there is, is a much more positive one than anything which is going to collapse control into smaller and smaller groups of people. Well, I'm glad uh, we've made a, a fan out of you for Space Decentral. <laughs> and I'm glad you're hitting this theme again of control over our futures. You mentioned it when talking about this hypothetical situation of an asteroid circling the Earth ready to destroy the mining industry. And mm -hmm. now it resurfaces again with this concept of control in the sense of the language and the activity that we pursue when it comes to 
changing space narratives. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you brought up this jargon that exists with naval and imperial history, because it's definitely been a, a subject of debate. How, if at all, can we make space exploration more appealing to everyone without making it less appealing to a traditional audience who certainly grasps themselves and sees themselves in this grand human imperial vision, if you will? I think it's probably helpful to make a differentiation between some of the sort of explicitly ideological rationales that have been attached to space travel and particularly in during the cold war and like what people involved actually think of them because if you if you take those say the apollo program for instance for all its its kind of extraordinary accomplishments like at the same time you have like gil scott heron releasing the record whitey on the moon and like you know this perception that this is all married white men who are literally being named like the best of the best and, and that sort of thing english speaking as well and so on and and so forth uh, and the reactions to that are fully justifiable but then beneath the surface it's kind of interesting to think about like well actually how do people involved in these things think about it because how their work is is subsumed into you know uh you know cold war propaganda is not necessarily like what people actually think in any kind of like implicit way and i you see that really clearly with with some of the figures of the time like Kraft erica uh, who worked at nasa wrote this extraordinary essay called the extraterrestrial imperative that was very it was very much about this this kind of like self-catalyzing sort of technological process of expanding options available to human beings, by which he meant, you know, the the more able we are to get off the planet reliably and increasingly cheaply and in larger and larger numbers, it's like the literally the more options there are for people in the world. Now, control over those options is is another thing, but it's a different narrative to the one that was being kind of like advanced super publicly and like a lot of dollars were being put behind, right? And in that essay, there's just really interesting points of view like for instance he starts by saying there have only been two industrial revolutions the second one is space flight the first one was photosynthesis because an industrial revolution needs to be defined <laughs> as a new relationship to space and when plants began to photosynthesize that was actually like a huge technical revolution so it's kind of there's a sort of esoteric <laughs> side to this but these are the kinds of ideas that don't really get floated in kind of popular narratives but it feels to me like maybe now actually there is a place for these kind of just like more interesting ideas to begin to take root, which are less bound up with the very conventional and familiar politics. I'm the only one here who does remember the 60s. I'm quite older than you guys. I wouldn't say grown up in the 60s. I was just a child. But, uh, you know, even uh, a five years old watching television and listening to the radio understands something about uh, how his contemporaries are viewing the world. Mm-hmm. So I do remember that uh, very powerful sense of excitement about mm-hmm. space that was everywhere in the 60s. It was in the media, it was, you know, when uh, you talk to the people in the street, uh, there were mm-hmm. a lot of conversation about space. And space was something that uh, many people uh, wanted. And I think that's the reason why space got 
uh, popular support and uh, eventually political support and something mm. is difficult for politicians to say no to something that the people want. So what I see as the main difference between space in the 60s and later decades like the 80s, the 90s and the last decade as well was that the enthusiasm of the people for space has gone down and mm. frequently the political support and the funding levels have gone down as well. And what we are discussing now is precisely how to boost the enthusiasm of people for space colonization and space expansion again. I think that's the real goal of this conversation. We are trying to think of how we can make space sexy again for everyone. And let me underline for everyone. We want to get everyone excited about space. What you just said, uh, Benedict, that the traditional conventional space narrative in the 60s was uh, a white is on the moon, married white man, as you say, which is a fact. And it's also a fact that we want to extend that uh, audience to everyone. At the same time, I am a married white man myself. A lot of uh, people who do good work in space, in both technical side and the media side, are a married white man. And the point that I want to make, and very strongly underline, is that if space has to be for everyone, we cannot exclude any audience. And in particular, I wouldn't like to think that in this landscape of new narratives of space expansion, that the old world is developing, there is no place for an average white man. That's not the way to achieve the sustainable inclusion that we want to achieve. So space is for everyone. Everyone means actually everyone. Everyone has something to contribute. Everyone should be invited to contribute without any exclusion of anyone based on skin color, gender, preferences, religious beliefs, and all that. I think we all agree on this point. Yeah, I think we're definitely all uh, agreed there that space for everyone does mean everyone. And there's certainly no place for discrimination in space with this kind of narrative of being more inclusive and uh, changing the paradigm in this direction. Yeah, sure. I would fully agree with that. And, and any initiative that aims to lower the barriers to people being able to participate in such programs, I think, is, is important. It's definitely noticeable to me that it's still very difficult to get involved in these kinds of things in any kind of direct way, right? For most people, regardless yeah. of situation, it's, you know, the PhD in aeronautics will really help. And, you know, whether they're being run by, you know, like private companies, national governments and so on, it, it's very structured how someone can become a part of uh, that sort of sector or industry or field of endeavor. Which, again, I think is one of the really interesting things about Space to Central and, and providing like a different kind of interface that will enable, you know, quite different um, constituencies or, or polities to, to like actually have not just a voice, but like an, an actual programmatic opportunity. The five-second summary of Space Central is that it's an in-progress web platform to help connect people and resources with space missions in the programmatic way that right now we're talking about doesn't really exist for large segments of the population. And it's an alternative to the big spending, high-powered approaches of the past that we've been discussing as well. So on that note, Dr. Singleton, how do you see the addition of crowd wisdom and this kind of 
the central bigger tent approach to space travel, uh, changing the, the way humanity goes about expanding beyond Earth. I just basically quickly reference your, the essay that you mentioned before, Kraft Eric's extraterrestrial imperative. How do you think it will affect that kind of imperative, that driving goal? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think because we've discussed it's providing a, a different point of access for many different kinds of people who historically haven't been involved in such initiatives. But then there's also the question of what does that mean? Like, what, like how, how does that contribute to a space program or, or programs? And I think for me, you have to be careful with understanding the dynamics of how like a, a digital platform, how that actually integrates with something which um, is actually is like a systematic plan. Because what you get in a lot of, you know, crowd situations, if you think of, you know, your Amazons and Facebooks and so on, and you know, you do get the possibility of uh, bringing together people who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have met, but like whether that actually sparks genuinely new insight and, and so on, it's kind of too early to be able to say with that technology, you know, and certainly yeah. you, you get uh, phenomena that like traverse the crowd, right? The way that a meme does, for instance. But what we're talking about here is not that kind of roiling maelstrom of people interacting and we're talking about like how can people en masse contribute alongside, you know, let's say token figure of like, you know, a million anonymous strangers. And this more than anything, this is kind of a question of the fate of the very large organization in the present day, as you might call it. So if you look at something like the Apollo program, I, uh, I'm not sure how this was calculated, but I read somewhere there's about 400,000 people involved. And if you were to develop a 400,000 person organization now, the way to do it, you would not initially think by what we're going to need is billions of dollars of funding and really tightly hierarchized and localized um, responsibilities and tasks and so on. You would look to involving the crowd in, in some way because they're operating in a different technological paradigm. But how that actually works, it sort of remains to be seen, right? And potentially one of the most interesting aspects of this to me is less the idea that we might um, chance on proto Tsiolkovsky's type figure who never would have been involved in the space program, but it turns out he's actually a genius, at, you know, developing air rebreathing systems or something. But more that actually it's engagement in this kind of cumulative program where ideas like get traction and things are actually built at the end of the day. It might become something which is just a more routine part of everyday life for a lot of people. And I say routine, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean merely that it's you know, sort of layered into the day to day and that people can sit and work on some of these things in the same way as they sit and play the guitar or they sit and read books or they go to the cinema or what have you. You know, it becomes a thing which we can move in and out of. Now, whether that actually accumulates into an effect, I mean, I'm hopeful um, that that would produce sort of radically new thinking. And But at the same time, I, I kind of feel like the what it might produce is actually something quite different to what we expect, you know? So it's not a question of is it efficient according to a known goal at the moment, but also what happens when people start thinking this way and they have like a different relationship to this ongoing program and, and so on and so forth. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Uh, it makes sense to me that this idea that as, as soon as all these options present themselves, it might not grow in the, the direction we expect because there isn't that top-down kind of assertion from any sort of head. Uh, yes, I think this is a good moment to bring up a point that I wanted to bring up. Going back to the very beginning of this conversation, one of the things that impressed me more when I first read Benedict's Maximum Jailbreak Essay uh, is uh, the reference to the philosophy of Nikolai Fyodorov, 
and uh, the Russian uh, cosmists, which is not yet uh, very well known in the West. It's mm -hmm. been uh, very popular in Russia some time ago. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen it. There was uh, a very good film by George Carris uh, titled uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door. It was aired by the BBC a few years ago. It was a very good film, and it made a uh, very good uh, case that uh, the philosophy of the Russian uh, cosmists was a very powerful uh, driving force behind uh, the scenes for the whole uh, Russian space uh, program. Let's remember that Russia is not doing too much in space right now. But going back to the 60s again, we really thought uh, that uh, there was a good uh, chance that the Russians would get on the moon first. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union was the first nation who launched the, the satellite Sputnik, which uh, started what was called uh, the space age at uh, that time. The Russian space uh, program had uh, very important achievements, which can be directly traced back to the Russian cosmist uh, philosophy which uh, brings to my mind the idea that uh, perhaps we need a very powerful uh, new philosophy, a complete uh, philosophical, metaphysical, even religious outlook to energize uh, everyone and uh, intoxicate everyone with uh, enthusiasm for space expansion. I have two questions for you, Benedict, on this point. One, mm -hmm. do you think uh, it uh, makes sense to attempt uh, some kind of a revival of uh, the Russian cosmist uh, philosophy. And uh, if not, what new philosophical movement could uh, take uh, place to stimulate everyone to think enthusiastically about space expansion again? Mm, interesting. Uh, maybe I should say a, a few things about Fedorov's cosmism, just the, you know, the, the general listener. So, uh, as you said, Julia, like the work of the Russian cosmists and so on is not very widely read, even within communities of people who, who were already very interested in, in this kind of thing. Fedorov was an incredibly ascetic, hyper-religious guy living in Moscow in the late 19th century. He worked in a library and after hours would put together this incredibly detailed program about what he thought humanity should do next, which he seems to have modeled to some extent off the Book of Revelations, but taking it kind of literally as a plan. And in that, it's really kind of extraordinary, the vision behind it, no matter what makes of the specifics. He begins with things like human beings should give up sex because it's a distraction from what he called the common task, which is a, a sort of generalized elevation of humanity. So in order to do that, we're going to need artificial wombs. We're going to need to be able to grow people. And then once we can do that, we need to also stop people dying at all. So everyone needs to become immortal. And then also we need to start resurrecting the dead. That's the thing which I guess he's best known for now. We're going to need to resurrect the dead to sort of maximize human intelligence. And then at that at that point, you will have so many people that you will have to start expanding off-world and therefore we will need spacecraft and so on to do it. 
an extraordinary vision. As I said before, this was all being written like a generation before this fixed wing flight. So to be thinking in this way was unusual to say the least, and certainly to be taking it seriously rather than to be writing fiction about it. So in terms of the maximum jailbreak, the interesting thing there was that basically Fedorov is describing the world and human life on it as like a nested series of traps. He doesn't use that language, but that's kind of, he's saying it's very much kind of like once we free ourselves of this thing, then we'll be in a position to free ourselves of this next bigger thing and then this next bigger thing, this next bigger thing up to um, storming the heavens and conquering death, which I found really interesting because of you know, PhD work had involved a lot about traps and the idea of this older understanding of design as being very much symbolized by people making traps. And in everything from sort of trickster legends to kind of contemporary folklore, there are these really strong images of people improvising their way into or out of traps. So that became kind of like a different way to look at Federal's project. I mean, Federal's project, apart from its, its kind of hyper-religiosity, I think it, it has like a really deep flaw in it in that he anticipates that objectives would remain the same all the way through. Like he has this figure that he calls man with a capital M. And it's always sort of like man will achieve this, man will achieve that, and man will, you know. And what he doesn't take into account is that what he's calling man, you know, the human species, would actually be changing substantially over the course of this kind of technological development. To live in a society where we were, for instance, free of death would be such a radically different political situation to begin with that to think that there would just be some sort of like obvious next step from that to the people who were involved in that situation seemed heuristic to say the least. And so that was very much the angle I was interested in in this kind of renewed cosmism was taking into account that actually there isn't a fixed finish line with these kinds of endeavors. What comes over the horizon is the next challenge, the next project after something has been like some adverse situation has been reliably diffused is by no means kind of given in advance and we need to have a model of that in our approach to it that we will be the collective social ambitions that are being formed through that kind of process are going to change radically. To give like a very trivial example, there is nothing remotely comparable in Fedorov to something like the internet and changing possibilities of social organization that came with it. I kind of see this mechanism as being antithetical to, you know, kind of really sustained systems of belief for that exact reason that things will change. There might be overall trajectories, but anything which attempts to lock down the future very tightly is antithetical to the general process to a point where it's, it's self-propelling, I suppose, in a sense. But in terms of the practical elements of, of that intoxication and enthusiasm, I would imagine that it's fairly safe to say that that would come off the back of both a mixture of striking images or horizons opening up and the possibility to engage with them directly, which is where initiatives like decentralized space agencies seem to be poised to take on a really interesting role with respect to the popular culture of space travel. You brought up a very interesting point that uh, in order to really expand into space, in order to really move to the stars, uh, human species have to remake itself. I think, and I also have written about the idea that uh, the humans who will go out to the stars and uh, colonize the space will not be flesh and uh, blood. There will be some kind of hybrids between uh, human uploads and uh, artificial intelligences. That would be a very interesting discussion in itself. But I think that uh, we should. Uh, strive to go to space now with today's men and women because the fact of knowing that uh, people are exploring and colonizing 
space is really the only thing that can uh, motivate uh, people and especially young people to develop uh, the new technologies that future generations will need to prepare the future that we want to see. I fully agree, Julia. I, I think there's, there's definitely a sense in which the sort of long-term viability of humans in orbit is something that still you know, needs to be established exactly what the issues are with you know, radiation levels if you want to have a trip to Mars and so on. But absolutely, I think this should be it's something that should happen now and not held back for some sort of like putative technological um, advance in, in the future. That said, I mean, it, it does seem that increasingly our perceptions of, of what AI is are changing a lot. You know, in 1968, you have HAL in 2001. Um, with the unblinking red eye, the soft-spoken human voice interface. And increasingly, what's being generated by AI programs is you know, massively distributed machine learning networks and things like that. So yeah, if you were to remake 2001 today, HAL would be quite a different system, right? And how that plays a role as a kind of co-explorer of other environments is something which I think will be super interesting to see develop. This kind of like you know, quasi-autonomous robotics rather than this kind of remote control vehicle. Yeah, the notion of AI and specifically the changes that Fedorov didn't anticipate in his original mm. work. They both speak to this two-way relationship between the designer in a context, whether it's Fedorov's man with a capital M in the future, in the process of going through those steps in turn becoming change, mm -hmm. or whether now it's with humanity going to the stars and the process of doing that will end up adapting itself to being something different, mm. or, or with AI. This idea that as our technology shifts and we have things like the internet and smart homes, our, our idea of how that relationship will be like between humans and these things that we create ostensibly as tools, but then as seen in pop culture, sometimes as co-equals, masters, or what have you. There's this kind of inexorable change that happens to both the designer and the object of design in mm -hmm. that process. I think we all agree there. Is that right? I certainly would. And it harkens back to, again, what you're saying about space decentral or with space more broadly, which is how things will proceed once we have this plethora of options. As these changes arise, what is intended will end up giving way to what will have to be something different or will end up being something different. As disheartening as it might be to designers, you being one of them, I mean, how does it feel knowing that when you design something, what comes out might end up being completely different for whatever reason? Great question, actually. And when I was talking before about an alternative history of design and, and where it might go now, part of it is this move away from a perception of top-down imprinting of ambitions on inert materials to something which is which is much more you know complex and open-ended right and that's that's only going to be all the more the case when when you're talking about projects that involve as many people and as long time spans and you know kind of resource use as, as something like a, a full-on space program an interesting thing to think about there is the difference between the goal and how the goal is set and what is produced along the way right with something like the apollo program there was like a very directive we're going to put a person on the moon and then bring them back like a very 
concrete and readily understood goals at the end of that process. And what we're talking about in terms of the current situation is vastly more diverse motivations. The goals themselves are a complex interlocking meshwork of different technologies being developed by different actors for slightly differing reasons perhaps, but maybe finding points of synergy along the way and, and so on. I guess it wouldn't at all be a disappointment if something entirely unexpected came out of that, some you know, significant change but in an unexpected direction. That's really what I think is one of the exciting things about the current situation of this slowly expanding ecosystem of different actors rather than having two really monolithic programs. If the 20th century really shows anything, its technology tends to like, operate in advance of those frameworks. The Apollo program is it's like a rare exception that I can think of off the top of my head, where there was very strong political will to like do a specific thing, and it was made to happen that way. It's often the other way around, that things happen and then we kind of have to deal with them. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Singleton, for your time today. It was really enjoyable. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Panel. It was a very illuminating conversation, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Sure thing, Julia. Dr. Singleton, if any listeners would like to get in touch with you, how would you like me to reach out to you? Sure, at Benedict on Twitter. Excellent. To the audience? Thank you for sticking around to this point in the podcast. I think you'll find it enjoyable and hopefully uh, find all the follow-ups enjoyable as well. You can see what we're up to at spacedecentral.net. Check out our white paper. Join us on Riot. You can also find us on social media, facebook.com slash groups slash spacedecentral, medium.com slash spacedecentral, twitter.com slash spacedecentral. We also have a YouTube channel, and uh, if you're interested in the more technical side, which we didn't cover today, uh, you can also find our GitHub repositories at github.com slash spacedecentral. Hoping to hear back from you in one way or another. Please do get involved. You can propose a mission, contribute, or simply uh, keep listening and learning from interesting people like uh, Dr. Benedict Singleton.